Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 1 Samuel chapter 11, and let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Samuel 11, this is the Word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Now Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you on this condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you, thus I will make it a reproach on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days, that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. Then the messengers came to Gebeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, What is the matter with the people that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. He numbered them in Bezek, and the sons of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. They said to the messengers who who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. So the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Then the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. Next morning Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered, so that not two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. And Samuel said to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they also offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Be seated. Okay, so... Again, a little context going back just a little bit to um, to First Samuel chapter ten. The Saul has been anointed king. It's been affirmed before the people. It's been a public uh, public right, and you remember that last time we we went through. What it meant that Saul was off hiding among the baggage, 
Remember, he's being anointed king, and yet here he is at the beginning, hiding among the baggage. And the knee-jerk, our knee-jerk, or my, I'll say okay, my knee-jerk response in reading that passage is always that he's being cowardly. And yet, I became convinced in looking through that, and combined with this passage, that Saul is, is being humble. And, and in a sense, what we're getting in these passages is, is the, the good beginning of the king of King Saul. It's a good beginning, right? But good beginnings don't necessarily, don't necessarily mean uh, good ends, right? He has a good beginning, but he does, is not careful to obey the word of the Lord. And uh, falls away. And so they, right in these passages, the, this, these are the two, you know, the, these are the few chapters we get. Right at the beginning where Saul is uh, reigning well. Again, we see the humility of Saul on display in this passage. In his response at the end of it. We'll get there. But there's humility. Remember Matthew Henry said he was so far from... Uh, resenting it when those guys said to him, you know, are we sure about Saul? He was so far from resenting it, which was an evidence of his humility and modesty and the mercifulness of his disposition, and also that he was well satisfied with his title to the crown. For those are commonly most jealous of their honor and most revengeful of affronts that gain their power by improper means. Saul had not gained his power by improper means, had he? The prophet had called him out. Right? He's been anointed. He did not, he did not ascend to this throne by stealing it away. He was given it by the Lord. And so he has nothing to fear. Had he stolen it, every affront he would have had to attack mercilessly. Somebody who steals authority will protect it with any means. Saul doesn't have to do that. He has legitimate authority given to him by the Lord. Um, Now, this is a good start, but Samuel has also been a prophet, and he's been warning about what it's going to be like under the king. But for now, we're being given a picture of a king leading. Saul... Saul, so, so in the last chapter, it's all ceremony. It's, it's Saul being uh, anointed. It's ceremony. It's public ritual. But now he receives what? A first test. The people of God are being afflicted by some enemies. So it's time for the king to do what the kings have been called to do. Right? Now, where's Saul? Where's Saul? What's he doing with the oxen? What's going on there? Well, he's out back to the work he did with his father. Right? He's out back doing the common work that he was given to. And and again, that that's um that's not necessarily a bad sign. It's not that he's shunning the responsibilities, but nothing has arisen in the kingdom where he has to exercise his kingship, right? There's, there's nothing has happened, right? He's been anointed king. He's been raised up, 
now there's going to be an enemy that's afflicting his, his people. And it's Nahash. Now, do we, do we know anything about the Ammonites? <clears throat> Nahash is, is an Ammonite. Remember who the Ammonites are. You should. Descendants of Lot by his daughter. And now here they are afflicting the children of God. Those illegitimate children of Lot. Um, by the incestuous relations with his daughters. right? And so that, that's, that's the Ammonites. Nahash, the name means serpent. Which is also significant. The fact that the serpent is coming against the people of Israel. And the king is raised up now to do battle with the serpent. Um, the... Uh, the affliction is very strong. This whole passage reminds us of the, the time of the judges, right? Especially as the Holy Spirit comes upon Saul. It's very similar to what happened during the time of judges. But Saul's now to receive his first challenge. The king of a nation is called to warfare. And uh, Jabesh Gilead is a town about 20 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. Um, things have not gone well in Jabesh Gilead. Go back and read in Judges 21, 8 through 12. This was where the tribe of Benjamin was, uh, was dealt with. Um, <clears throat> the, there are historical fragments that talk about Nahash. These, these don't appear in Scripture but in some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's information on Nahash. And uh, it says this, Now Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had been oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites, grievously gouging out the right eye of each of them and allowing Israel no deliverer. Uh, no men of, of the Israelites who were across the Jordan remained whose right eye Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had not gouged, gouged out. But 7,000 men had escaped from the Ammonites and entered into Jabesh Gilead. Joseph, Josephus confirms these things historically in the antiquities. But the, the point of this is Nahash has been doing quite a bit of damage to the people of Israel. He's already, to some of the tribes, been gouging out their eyes. And now he comes to another and he's about, he, he doesn't fear, does he? It's an absurd question, you know. I'll make a covenant with you if you let me gouge out your right eye. Then I'll let you live, right? And, and then they ask him, well, give us seven days. Would, any, would anybody who's fearful, would a good commander of an army allow somebody to have seven days to do some <laughs> reconnaissance and, you know, get things in order? He does, so apparently he's not very fearful of Israel. And again, that shows you the weak state of the kingdom of Israel at this point. It's, it's not feared by, by Nahash of the Ammonites. It's not feared by the nations surrounding it. And so, <clears throat> um, so he offers them a treaty. I won't kill you. I will make you... But what would it make them if he gouged out their right eye? 
What would it make them if you gouged out their right eye? One, a disgrace, right? I mean, it's shameful. I mean, it'd be a permanent mark everywhere seen by everybody who came in contact with the Israelites that they had been defeated, right? So it's public shame that he's offering to them. But what else? I mean, what... How would it affect these men of Israel? Well, it's going to make them dependent. It's going to make them subservient. It's going to make them weak, right? It's going to make them unable to to fight. It's going to make them unfit for for military service. Uh, One commentary I was reading said that that the, the shields they used covered the the left eye, but not the right. And so if the right's gouged out, you're essentially unable to do warfare of any significance. And, and yet it says, and so, I mean, there are all kinds of practical reasons Nahash would want to gouge out their eyes. One, to make them subservient and weak, but two, to disgrace Israel. He wants to make a mockery of Israel. This is the perfect opportunity, right, for the king to stand up and say, no, we are the kingdom of Israel, God's people. And so, um, and so that is what uh, Saul goes on to do. But there's, but there's an important verse before that. Saul doesn't coax up his zeal, does he? Saul doesn't um, put his headphones on with his choice music, right, to get pumped up for battle, right, the way we would for a workout, the way our athletes do before they go into combat in the Super Bowl, right? He doesn't, um, he doesn't um, make an offering on his own according to his own rules, not at this point, right? What happens with Saul? What happens with Saul? The Holy Spirit comes upon King Saul, verse 6, right? Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, Right, so here he is, he hears the people, they're afflicted, right? They're weeping. They're afraid. They're 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 trying to figure out how they're gonna get out of this predicament. They're weeping, they're crying out, and Saul hears it, and at that point the Spirit of God comes upon him mightily. This is just like those judges. This is just like Samson. This is the same language that's used here. It's the same language that's used here, right? The Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words. And then, what else? He got angry. He got angry. Good anger, bad anger, righteous anger. Is there good anger? 
how often do you, uh, is your anger, would you put it in the category of good anger? Right? What's at stake here? The reputation of the God of Israel, the name of the God of Israel, right? Nahash wants to make a disgrace, not just of the people of Israel, but he wants to make a disgrace of the God of the people of Israel, right? All these, all these battles between tribes and between countries is always a battle between the gods of these countries. Just like Exodus, the, the, the miracles that were performed in Exodus were to make a mockery of the gods of Egypt, and, and Yahweh had done that. Now Nahash wants to make a mockery of, of the God of Israel. And Saul, the Spirit comes upon him. And the fruit of the Spirit is anger. Anger. Righteous anger. Anger that Nahash would afflict the people but would mock God. Um, that's righteous anger, right? When it's not about your, your own reputation but it's about the name of the Lord. It's so hard to have the righteous kind of anger, the kind of anger that's not your own ego wrapped up in it. So often, that's the kind of anger that I have. Right? It's about my kingdom. It's about my ego. It's about my, you know, my sense of inconvenience, whatever. But not about the name of God. So the Spirit of God comes upon Saul like those judges who preceded him. He's a, a second Samson, a second Gideon. And um, vehement desire comes. Remember the previous chapter. Shy, retiring, humble, modest, hidden among the baggage. Spirit of God comes upon Saul and he's angry and leads. It's a change. It's a transformation, right? But it's according to the need of the moment. God has given him this zeal that is according to the need of the moment. And so it makes him a man who goes out front. Now, he doesn't just do that. He, he, he slaughters a yoke of oxen, sends the pieces about to Israel... And then sends a message to the people of, to the men of Israel. Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel. It says after Saul and after Samuel. So shall it be done to his oxen. He threatens those who would, who would not fight for the God of Israel and for the nation. He threatens them with the loss of their wealth right but but it is significant now that he says whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel again he's willing to share the the ruling of Israel with this prophet I mean again just sort of taking uh, taking a step back um, sharing the work not afraid to name Samuel next to him Again, pointing to his humility, it's, 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 uh, it's amazing. Now, the yoke of oxen spread out uh, over the Israelites leads to what? <clears throat> what does it lead to? Look at your Bibles. 
they were filled with a kind of a particular kind of dread. The dread of the Lord. Right? So the king who has been raised up, anointed, set before the people publicly, they know he's the king. The king does this action, says, if you don't come out, this is what's going to happen to your oxen. And the response of the people is fear of God. The dread of the Lord falls upon them. And, it, and again, this, this word here, dread of the Lord, we're used to Scripture translating, or we're used to the phrase, the fear of the Lord. This is different. This is the dread of the Lord. It's a different Hebrew word. It's pachad, not yirah. Yirah is the fear of the Lord, like at the beginning of, of um, Proverbs, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is reverence. That is to understand the awesomeness of God, to reverence God. This is tremble, fear, be afraid of, be sick to your stomach, trembling before God because you dread what's coming. So the dread of the Lord comes upon them. And that dread of the Lord, I mean, think of the fruit of that fear. Think of the fruit of that dread. Does it lead them to um, run away with their animals to Egypt? Does it lead them to take, uh, to, um, to save what they can and to begin, um, begin fighting against King Saul and say, uh-oh, what have we done? We've put this man in place who has anger issues. Right? How dare he say he's going to do that to our oxen? What do our oxen have to do with this? And I've worked all my life to build up that well. And now he's telling me that he's going to do that to my oxen if I don't come out? No, the fruit of that is they come out as one man. All the men of Israel come out as one man. They just come out. The fruit of his actions is they, they gird up their loins for warfare. How many come out? 330,000 men come out as one man to fight. Um, Saul leads them to victory in how many days? <clears throat> one day. He leads them to victory against Nahash. What does he do? He commands them. He doesn't just, uh, he doesn't hand, it, it seems he's making commands. He, he does what? He puts them in three different divisions. So their attack is not just a, a foolish attack, you know, everybody's straightforward. But he seems to be coming at them, you know, from three angles. He is uh, commanding them. So now, now he's, now Saul has stepped up. He has, uh, he's been called by God. He's been anointed. He's been called by God. He's stepped up. Now he's, com- he's called, he's mustered the troops. They've come and he's commanded them and he's gotten the victory. And then the scene turns very interestingly. It returns to the scoffers, doesn't it? Verse 12, then the people said to Samuel, who is he that said, shall Saul reign over us? Now, who were those guys who said that? We've got to deal with them. 
Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, think of this. Saul said, not a man shall be put to death today, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. What a godly response. Again, a legitimate opportunity for him to dominate his enemies, for him to put them down. And he says, no, the reason why, though, is who gave them victory that day? He acknowledges that God gave them victory. He's not even willing to take credit for himself. He's not willing to give the people credit. He gives God in heaven credit for their victory. For today the Lord has accomplished deliverance for Israel. The Lord. So Saul shows even his enemies mercy. This is like King David would do to Saul when Saul has turned against the Lord. Right? King David has multiple opportunities to set his hand against the Lord's anointed. And he does not. Even though that, that Saul Saul's his enemy. Right? Saul wants to kill David. David has opportunities to take him down. He says, shall I come against the Lord's anointed? No. And so here's Saul showing the mercy that David would later show toward him, toward his own enemies. It's mind-boggling. Samuel, is it, do you think Samuel's encouraged at this point? Samuel is probably very encouraged at this point. The king is, has risen up, he is led, and he has acknowledged that it was the Lord's work. And so it appears at the end, you know, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. That, that Samuel wants to again publicly affirm Saul before the people. So they go to Gilgal, they offer peace offerings, there's rejoicing. Um, <clears throat> and, and the first test has passed and Saul has done well. You think about this, one, Saul, and we talked about this early on, Saul would be, Saul is being used by the Spirit. The Spirit is influencing Saul at this point. It was the Spirit that came upon him and gave him the righteous kind of anger. It's the Spirit that came upon him and and caused him to um, muster the troops and lead, lead them into battle. It's the Spirit's influence. And yet, um, we know the tragic end of Saul as well. Now, um, all of this, and I'll, I'll close here, but all of this is, I think, so that we as believers in Christ, those who know the grace of God, those who have known the influence of the Holy Spirit, may walk circumspectly and not think too highly of ourselves. That's what we get from Saul. We get a warning not to think too highly of ourselves. He is doing very well. He is producing magnificent works. 
that give glory to God, and yet we know he falls away and becomes an enemy of God. It's a good start. Humble beginnings do not mean humble ends. Um, And so we're being set up to, to feel the weight of Saul's fall. We're being set up in these passages to feel the weight of that. The tragedy, the, the, the heinousness of sin. We're being warned in Saul to feel and hate the weight of sin and the way it can drag people away from the gospel. This is, this is all, and I'm not making this up, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Right? You remember what Paul says there. He goes through Israel's sins. He goes through their sins. Our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea, baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, and they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do you crave evil things? Do you crave evil things? Think of Saul. He would eventually crave evil things and set himself against God. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And Saul sobers us up. His start in the, in, in the faith may be stronger than our start's. And yet there he is at the end, overtaken by a spirit of evil. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Paul wrote this to Christians. Paul, the one who taught us that about those wondrous doctrines like the perseverance of the saints, told us to take heed lest you fall. And not to think too highly of ourselves. And then this encouraging verse. No temptation has overtaken you. But such as is common to man. And God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also. So that you will be able to endure it. Therefore my beloved flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. And so, so again, Saul, we're being shown this example of Saul starting, and this will become more clear as we go through the book. This good example of Saul starting so that we might take 
heed and be humble. Do not crave evil things. You can make shipwreck of your faith by simply craving evil things and going after them. Do not follow in the footsteps of Saul, no matter how good your start is. Let's pray. Father, oh Father, we, we feel... the weakness of our faith and the strength of our flesh. Father, we we need your Holy Spirit to come upon us. We need your Holy Spirit to sanctify us. Father, because if it's left to ourselves, we will make shipwreck of our faith. We will think too highly of ourselves. We will not have the proper perspective. We will not not acknowledge your holiness. We will not feel any fear of you. We will not feel any dread of you. But Father, we will simply flirt with destructive things. And so Father, I pray that you would, by your spirit, sober us up that we might walk in fear, that we might walk as Christians who know the saving grace of Jesus Christ, that we might walk in fear, knowing the, the fickleness, the, the frailty, the, the easily twisted about sinful natures that we grapple with. So, Father, I pray that you would give me sobriety in my faith. I pray that you would give us all sobriety, that that you would persevere us by your Spirit, that our minds would be fixed on things above and not the things of this earth, that we would not be caught up in something that drags us away from you and down to hell. But God, give us repentance that glorifies you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.